Well, please turn your attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. Well, what is sin? What is sin? Now, even if we don't have a robust theological understanding of what sin is according to Scripture, I am sure that we all know what sin is experientially. We all have experienced the temptation and effects and consequences of sin in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Think for a moment of the habits of sin in your life. Not the things that you do once every blue moon, but the things that you do on a daily basis, maybe even multiple times a day. The patterns of thought, speech, and behavior. Think of the anger, the rage, and the frustration. Think of the sexual lust and the lack of self-control over food and drink and even the use of our own words. Think of your relationship with your work, whether it be an idolatrous relationship with your work or an inclination towards laziness. Think again of your use of your tongue and how often we give complete reign, free reign to our tongue and our tongue then produces all sorts of destruction around us. Think of our discontentment and how hard it is for us to truly be content in our current season of life based on God's present goodness towards us. Think how often we fall into the trap of insecurity and seek to self-protect. We know our sin. We know our sin experientially. We all have experienced the claws of sin grip us with that iron grip. Our experience in this life is much like Paul's experience in Romans chapter 7 when he says, I do not understand my own actions. I do the very things that I hate. I do not do what I want. Now, Genesis chapter 3 
verses 1 through 7 is essentially giving us hooks upon which we can hang our experience of sin on. Or to put it another way, Genesis 3, 1 through 7 is giving us categories. Categories to help us understand our experience as sinners in this fallen world. So what I would like us to do this morning is to consider these verses through the lens of this question. What is sin? I'd like us to consider these verses through the lens of this question. What is sin? This morning, we will consider the tempter of sin, the lies of sin, the consequences of sin, and last of all, the deliverance from sin. The tempter of sin, the lies of sin, the consequences of sin, and the the deliverance from sin. Now, in 1 Peter 5, 8, the apostle Peter says that we all, we all are to be sober-minded and watchful because our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. According to Peter, the hallmark characteristic of the evil one is that he prowls around seeking to devour. Well, this prowling devil is presented here in Genesis chapter 3 as a crafty serpent. In verse 1 of of chapter 3, we read, Moses tells us that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast which the Lord God had made. How is the serpent's craftiness exemplified? Well, notice what the serpent is doing here in these verses. The serpent is asking questions. This is a very disarming approach. The serpent is seemingly asking innocent questions of Eve. Think of those times in life when you're trying to change someone's mind. If you go up to that person with imperatives, stop doing this and start doing that, generally the person's guard goes up and communication is shut down. But if you approach them with seemingly innocent questions, that sometimes disarms them and the airways for communication are opened. And so we see the serpent is asking questions. But these are not innocent questions. The intended purpose behind these questions are to twist and cast doubt upon God's word. The intended purpose behind these questions are to twist and to cast doubt upon God's word. And so this crafty, question-asking serpent is here in these verses presenting himself as a rival Lord to Yahweh, to God, the creator and sustainer of all that exists. Notice here that Satan, the serpent, doesn't refer to God by his covenant name, Lord, in all caps. He just says God, the generic name for God. This indicates that Satan does not bow his knee to the rule, the reign, the sovereignty of Yahweh. Notice further that the serpent is speaking. We use our speech to exercise authority. The serpent is trying to exercise authority over God's image bearers. The serpent is seeking to vie for 
Eve and Adam's allegiance, heart, and affections. And so what is sin? Well, sin is enticed by the tempter, by that prowling lion, by that crafty serpent. Sin also is believing the lies of this tempter. Sin is also believing the lies of this tempter. Now, there are at least three lies that we believe when we sin. There are at least three lies that we believe when we sin. The first of which is that God's word really isn't true. God's word really isn't true. Notice the first question that the serpent poses to Eve. Did God really say? Did God really say? And through this question, he's seeking to plant a a seed of doubt in Eve's heart and mind about God's prohibition. Did God really say that you shouldn't eat of any of of the fruit of this tree? In verse 4, we see that the serpent is trying to plant a seed of doubt in Eve's mind over the sanction. Did God really say that you would die? Like literally die if you ate of this tree? Well, this tactic is the same tactic that the evil one, this crafty serpent, uses for us as well. Did God really say, in relation to the first four commandments, did God really say that we are to worship him alone according to his word with fear and reverence on the Lord's day? I mean, come on. Isn't that a bit outdated, puritanical, legalistic? Doesn't God really just want us to worship him in a way that feels right to us? Did God really say that we need to honor mother and father and all authority figures? Even those for whom we don't like or for those with whom, uh, those who have different convictions than us? You can keep going down the Ten Commandments. Did God really mean what he said when he gave us his moral law? Surely those ancient commandments can't apply to us today. The serpent wants us to believe that God's moral law is merely a wax nose that we can manipulate according to our preferences and desires. Well, the serpent does the same thing with the gospel. Did God really say that you are completely forgiven? That you are declared righteous apart from your law keeping? Come on. That can't be true. You have to contribute something to your salvation. And even if it was true, you surely would be an exception. Satan wants us to believe that God's law is not applicable for us and the gospel is not for us. Satan wants us to believe that the the law is not applicable to us and the gospel is not for us. Satan wants us to believe that the law is not really that demanding and the gospel is really not that gracious. The serpent wants us to believe the law is not that demanding and the gospel is not that gracious. And so when we sin, we are believing, believing that God's word really isn't true in his law and in his gospel. Well, the second lie that we believe when we sin is that the original order of creation is and was not good. The original order of creation is and was not good. Now, what was that original order of creation that we witnessed in Genesis 1 and 2? Well, God is presented as this this grand architect, creator and sustainer of all things. 
And man, who is made in his image and likeness, is his vice regent. Man is called to rule as he ruled. Man is called to work as he worked. Man is called to exercise dominion over all of creation. And so the original authority structure of creation is God at the top, man underneath God, and thus all of creation underneath the feet of man, God's image bearers. Well, what are our first parents doing when they sin? They are seeking to subvert this original authority structure of creation. They are seeking to place the serpent, a created being, someone for whom Adam and Eve were to exercise authority over, and they are seeking to place the serpent at the top of the hierarchy. And in so doing, they're placing God at the bottom of the hierarchy. They're subverting, or at least attempting, to subvert the authority structure, the original authority structure of creation. This point is further substantiated when you uh, dwell upon what, what God says at the end of Genesis chapter 3 in reference to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. At the end of Genesis chapter 3, God says, Because man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil through eating of this forbidden fruit, he must be exiled expelled from this holy garden. But what was this tree? Well, this tree was a place of testing. This tree was the place where Adam's ability to discern between good and evil would be tested. And so at the end of Genesis chapter 3, God's being ironic. He's saying because man in his hubris thinks that he has become like one of us, knowing good and evil as well as we do, or even greater than we do, he must be exiled. God's being ironic. He's saying because God, because man has exalted himself above us, thinking that he knows good and evil better than we do, he must be banished. Banished from this holy sanctuary. Well, this, beloved, is precisely what we do when we sin. When we sin, we are, by our actions, declaring that we are autonomous individuals who stand in judgment over God, who stand in judgment over God's word. When we sin, we are saying that God's original order of creation is and was not good. When we sin, we are claiming to know the difference between good and evil better than God does. Well, the last lie that we believe when we sin the last lie of this tempter is that God's law is restrictive. That God really is just a stingy God. Again, notice the questions that, that the serpent asks Eve here in these first few verses. He says, did, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And here, the serpent is quoting God's words from Genesis 2, 16 through 17. In those verses, God tells the man, the man that you can eat of every tree of the garden except this one tree. But notice how the serpent twists and changes God's word. He changes every to any, making God appear restrictive, making God appear stingy. Now, God's law is offense, and there are really two ways in which we can view and understand the fence of God's law. 
The first perspective that we can have of, of God's law is as a fence creating a pasture. And within this pasture of God's law, it's lush, it's full of vegetation, it's well watered, it's safe from predators. And outside the fence of God's law is a desert wasteland with no vegetation, with no water. Open game for predators and wild animals. This is the perspective that God gives us in his word of his law. God's law is good for us. God's law reveals to us how to live well as human beings in this natural and created universe. God's law reveals to us the path of flourishing in this age. You know, imagine you buy a new product and uh, you just throw away the instruction manual without looking at it and you end up using the product wrong. This is sort of what we do as, in our sin. We autonomous, autonomously think that we know how to live well in this world apart from God's revelation, apart from God's law. But God's law is given to us to reveal, yes to believers, but even for unbelievers, the path of flourishing in this natural universe as natural human beings. Well, the other perspective, the perspective that Satan wants us to believe, is just the opposite. Inside the pasture of God's law is a desert wasteland. No water, no vegetation with wild animals. But outside the fence is where the water, the good fruit, and all the lush green grass exists. And so what perspective of God's law do you have? Do you have God's perspective or the serpent's perspective? Do you see God's law as revealing to you the path of flourishing as an image bearer in this age? Or do you see God's law as really restrictive, restricting your authenticity and your personal freedom and happiness? How do you view God's law? Do you view it according to the perspective of the serpent or according to God's perspective? Well, when we sin, we are believing by our own actions, by what our own actions declare, we are believing these lies, these lies that the serpent initially gave Eve here in Genesis chapter 3. Well, sin also brings forth consequences. By its very own nature, sin brings forth consequences. Now, what do our first parents do in verse 7? What do our first parents do in verse 7? Well, they are ashamed. They recognize that they're naked, and they're, for the first time, ashamed of that nakedness. At the end of chapter 2, we read that both the man and the woman were, were naked, but they were not ashamed. But now, after that first sin, they recognize their nakedness. They're filled with shame. And what do they do after that? They sew together fig leaves to cover themselves. Guilt, corruption, and shame, these are the necessary consequences of sin in this age. Guilt, corruption, and shame. When well, Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul very clearly tells us that Adam was a representative figure, meaning that his actions had consequences for the many. And therefore, in Adam's sin, sinned we all. In Adam's sin, sinned we all. We as Adam's posterity, have inherited Adam's guilty verdict. We have inherited Adam's corrupt nature and consequently then the shame that comes forth from this guilt and corruption. 
Who shall deliver us from this body of death? Who shall deliver us from this guilty verdict? Who shall deliver us from this corrupted na uh, nature? Who shall deliver us from the shame, the shame that we naturally try to cover through our own efforts and works? Who shall deliver us from this body of death? Well, thanks be to God, he sent into this world a second Adam. A second Adam to do what the first Adam failed to do. Where the first Adam brought condemnation and death, the second Adam brought justification and life. And so the second Adam came to do precisely what the first Adam failed to do. What did the first Adam fail to do? Well, the first Adam failed to exercise dominion over the serpent, and rather than exercising dom dominion over the serpent, the serpent dominated Adam and Eve. They failed in that image of God commission. And so the second Adam came to do what the first Adam failed to do. This is why in Matthew chapter 4, we see that Jesus is led out into the wilderness to be tempted by this roaring lion, by this crafty serpent. And this crafty serpent uses the same tactics against the second Adam as he used against the first Adam. He quotes scripture. He twists those same scripture verses and thus spews lies to the second Adam. He even calls upon Jesus to bow down in submission to him. But yet, Jesus refused, resolutely refuses to be dominated by the serpent. Then you fast forward to Jesus' death on the cross and his glorious, glorious resurrection from the dead. And in those events, Jesus definitively delivered the death blow to that serpent. Jesus definitively expelled that ancient serpent from God's holy kingdom. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, did what the first Adam should have done. Protect God's holy sanctuary from all that which is unholy. And therefore, in Christ, through faith in Christ, your guilty verdict is reversed. Your corrupt nature is being renewed. And the, the loincloths, the fig leaves that you use to cover your own shame is replaced with the righteous garments of Christ's holy works and merits. This is the gospel that we are called to embrace. This is the gospel that's for you, beloved. So how? How do you know that you're a sinner? Well, all you need to do is look within you. Whenever you have a moment of introspection, we all get a glimpse of the depths of our own depravity. How do we know then that we're beloved children of God? We don't look within ourselves. If you look within yourselves, you're just going to be convinced of the guilt and corruption that you've inherited through that first Adam. So how are we assured of our status as children of God? We look outside of ourselves to the external word, the promises of scripture about what this second Adam has done for us, for you, and for me. But we also look to the sacraments, and particularly relevant for us today, we look to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, we are reminded that as surely as you can taste bread, and as surely as you can taste wine, so surely you can know that you belong no longer to the first Adam, 
but you belong, body and soul, life and in death, to the second Adam. And thus your guilt, your guilty verdict is reversed. Your corrupt nature is renewed. And your shame has been replaced with perfect righteousness. One of the goals, one of the goals of the Lord's Supper is for you to leave here being just as assured that you are a child of God as you are that you are a sinner. One of the goals of the Lord's Supper is for you to be just as assured that you are a child of God as you are that you are a sinner. Think about that. Let that percolate within you as we approach this Lord's table in a few moments. Let's pray.